from Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why women are the face of a low-carbon future, getting an ROI for the circular economy, turning utility execs into climate champions, and why banks are backing away from funding pipelines. We're following the money this week on 350. It's April 7th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren, welcome back. Same to you. How's it going? It's going good. We've both been on some adventures uh, over the past week or 10 days. Um, Tell me a little about yours. Yeah, so I ticked a big one off my bucket list last week. I headed off to the Seychelles, which are in the middle of the Indian Ocean, sort of east of Kenya and north of Madagascar. It was mostly a non-work trip, lots of diving and snorkeling. But I mean, it's hard to ignore sort of the, the climate issues that come up. The reefs in certain places had really taken a beating from the, the warmer weather. Talk to some folks who are sort of in the tourism and ocean related businesses about what they're doing to try to bring that back. And also some of these huge hotels out there like the Four Seasons and others that actually own entire islands, because we're talking about 120 islands all together on this Uh, archipelago and so they're doing some really interesting stuff in terms of looking at different barriers for sea level rise. I think there will definitely be some stories coming out of that region of the world for sure as we think about climate adaptation but like you alluded to you were also on a big adventure. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you were? I was uh, in Hong Kong and Kathmandu. Um, Just uh, again uh, not work trip. I was actually uh, with my wife who was involved with a couple of uh, big art-related projects in in both of those cities, particularly in Kathmandu. And uh, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of an environmental uh, angle to all this, which is that um, when we were outside of Kathmandu in the the Himalayan foothills, where we were uh, staying in this lovely, lovely resort, uh, where we were supposed to get this spectacular view of the, you know, we were at 6,000 feet and we were supposed to be able to see mountains that were 10 to even 20,000 feet. They weren't really in view except for some of the near-term ones. And it turned out that um, that the winds have, have shifted, that winds of change had shifted uh, in, in that part of the world. They typically come from the uh, south and west. And this week or last week, they were coming from the north and east, which means that uh, it was blowing a lot of pollution from Beijing and obscuring the mountains. And, and it's kind of remarkable because Beijing is, is almost 2,000 miles from Kathmandu, and yet there it is. Yeah, it's really crazy. It definitely says something about both of our travel styles that we're picking up on things like this, but good times nonetheless. And it's also interesting that uh, it sounds like, as as with you in the Seychelles, and, and certainly was the case in Nepal, which is that um, people are talking about this stuff. They get, they, they talk about climate, they talk about pollution, they talk about, you know, the air quality in Beijing, um, and certainly looking at, at water and waste. I mean, I was kind of appalled in, in, in Kathmandu is that there seems to be zero 
waste management infrastructure. Mm. You know, at least uh, I was in actually Costa Rica earlier this year, and you can see that they have everybody has this thing on the front of their property for to put the trash, so the trash trucks can come by. Um, in Kathmandu, it's just kind of a everywhere on the streets and it seems like the the dogs and the cows and the goats and and the and other critters are, are what uh, process the the trash so it's hmm. they got a lot of work to do and and uh, it's interesting just to see how these uh, countries are evolving yeah it's funny i totally hear you on the fact that everybody's so attuned to the environment and where i was on the islands i actually had people I guess who think a lot about water asking me about the drought in California. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it's a small world. It is a small world after all. And let's move into the world of green biz and the week in review. So one of the things we did this week is we launched the nomination process for our annual 30 Under 30 feature. Um, it recognizes emerging leaders, obviously under a certain age of 30, uh, who are tackling some of the tough sustainability challenges in business. Uh, people in companies, people working in startups, nonprofit sector, government. Um, this is uh, was uh, our second. This is our second year. Last year's was such a hit, um, and um, it, we're really excited to to take it again. Yeah, we've got the submission form officially up and running. Thank you to anyone who has already sent us nominees. Um, but we're looking for nominations for people who have not reached their 30th birthday by June 5th, 2017. We're looking at wrapping up submissions by the end of April, Friday, April 28th. And to get more information, you just go to greenbiz.com slash 30 under 30. And I think it's worth noting that uh, we've taken on a partner this year to uh, help broaden the scope is that we're partnering with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, WBCSD, as it is lovingly known. Uh, and the purpose of that is uh, is to cast a much broader net uh, WBCSD has a is a global network of, of senior executives uh, in uh, all over the world in every continent pretty much, and so we're really trying to make this much more global. We did admittedly focused on North America last year and put together an amazing list. Uh, thanks to to the great work that you, Lauren, and and the rest of the editorial team did. Um, but we're really excited to make this truly global. It is, as we said earlier, a small world, and we want to make sure to include as much of it as we can. Definitely. Another point to hit is that we're certainly looking for diversity across industries. So if you're working in energy, resilient cities, food, automotive, anything that sort of relates to sustainability, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but in the meantime, I did want to turn to a really great look at an industry that we talk about a lot, which is the future of power utilities. Our editor-at-large, David Crane, who knows a thing or two about how energy companies work from his former role as the CEO of NRG Energy, penned a great column this week called Why Can't Utility Execs Stand Up for the Climate? Yeah, he's he's uh, nothing if not provocative, but also insightful. And in this particular case, he kind of takes on one of his, not just one of his former colleagues when he was, uh, when David was the president, or excuse me, CEO of NRG Energy, 
but also a friend of his, Tom Fanning, who's the long-serving CEO of Southern Company, which is based in Atlanta, uh, one of the big U.S. utilities, um, who's been talking a little bit like, uh, he actually starts off with a quote that sounds like it could have come from Scott Pruitt, the climate-denying EPA administrator, but it came from the, the uh, head of one of the biggest uh, U.S. utilities. He had been asked, uh, has it been proven by that carbon dioxide is the primary cause of, cause of climate change? And Fanning had said, nope, certainly not. Is climate change happening? Yes, but certainly, but it's been happening for, for millennia. So, uh, you know, David is kind of scathing, but very direct and, and constructive in his his critique of, of what's going on here, and not just with Fanning, but so many other of his brothers and sisters who are at the helm of, of not just investor-owned utilities like the Southern Company, but the municipal, munis, the municipally-owned ones, and the, the energy co-ops and others who just aren't yet standing up for the climate. Mm -hmm. And to that end, I think another thing this column really gets at is sort of not only the different types of business models we see in the utility space, but sort of variation by geography. We've talked a lot on this show about sort of different uh, approaches in different places and sort of the political climate on the ground. Um, but one of the things that certainly I think is going to be really interesting to watch in the next couple of years in particular is how groups that are working on deploying renewables, things like community solar or other models that sort of maybe change the math or change the appeal of clean power to see how that sort of translates to all these different facets of the utility world. Yeah. And I love how he just sort of takes on on the sector, um, you know, without, uh, you know, sidestepping issues. I mean, he, he, he says that, you know, I get that utility CEOs have to be political, but how political do they have to be? At some level, don't we deserve to be served by an electric industry that has some core principles that do not shift with the political winds? And he talks about what if Trump administration, you know, in, in, in its deregulatory zeal were to cancel all workplace safety regulations or zero out the OSHA budget, um, you know, would you know, would the utility executives, you know, stand up for that? And so where it, where are those moral, ethical principles um, that seem to be missing. It's funny you mentioned that, Joel, because we had another piece this week by our East Coast reporter, Keith Larson, on banks like ING and DNB backing away from investing in pipelines. Specifically, Keith was taking a look at the Dutch bank ING and Norwegian bank DNB, for those who might not be familiar, that have announced plans to sell off their stakes in loans funding the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline. So this is sort of an interesting nexus of things Keith writes about a lot, sort of how activist investors and folks in the sustainability world petitioning companies to change the way they spend their money are actually making an impact. Yeah, talk, talk about uh, political courage. And uh, I mean, this is this is certainly a case in, in, in terms of its timeliness, banks really have to take a look at what they're funding and whether it's good for more than just beyond their bottom line. And there's also some pressure coming their way. Keith writes about the Seattle City Council that voted uh, back in February not to renew its contract with Wells Fargo because of the banks, uh, not because of the, the scandal that uh, Wells Fargo uh, was involved in in terms of you know creating fake accounts for its, its some of its customers, but actually because of the bank's involvement with uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, this controversial uh, pipeline across uh, Standing Rock Sioux Tribes uh, territory, 
And, um, you know, it, we're starting to see other pressure uh, really start to hit the banks where it matters uh, with some of their biggest institutional customers. That's certainly true. And as people like our own Shandine Cedar have written, the Dakota Access Pipeline example, obviously hugely high profile at this point, but it's a really interesting sort of collision of a lot of different factors. You've got sort of grassroots climate activists with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe obviously being very vocal in their water protection campaign, but also this sort of financial collision that you're talking about where you have banks rethinking sort of their financial responsibilities going up against the pipeline's owner, a company like Energy Transfer Partners, that happens to have an investor named Donald Trump. So it is this sort of bizarro collision that we're probably going to be seeing much more of in the coming months and years, um, just competing interests and seeing how they sort of shake out. Yeah, it's a circle of financial life. But it's not just uh, pipelines. Uh, for example, last year, J.P. Morgan Chase revised its coal financing policy to eliminate financing new what they call green coal mines, uh, green fields, as pro prohibiting the financing of, of new coal facilities as opposed to making the existing ones, I guess, more efficient. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of that, the pressure on the big banks, on the wells and, and cities and B of A and J.P. Morgan Chase and and, and of course, uh, many more outside the U.S. Are, are starting to really feel the heat on climate change. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, does this actually affect these projects' ability to get funding or are there private equity or other firms that are able to fill that void? Uh, that's a question that's, well, it's literally a, has a multi-trillion dollar answer. Another multi-trillion dollar space that we've been watching closely is the future of transportation. And we picked up a fun piece this week from our friends over at Business Green in the UK. Their senior reporter, Madeline Cuff, wrote a piece called Greening the Fleet, Uber Eyes EV-Only Service in London. Uh, this actually dovetails pretty closely with a piece that we discussed on the podcast a few weeks ago, looking at how General Motors is approaching sort of EVs, electric vehicles in the space of ride sharing and on-demand transportation. But in terms of what Uber is doing, they specifically commissioned a firm to sort of investigate how easy or not easy it would be for their drivers to go all electric in a dense urban environment like London. Uh, so they had, it was, it was relatively small scale. They had 50 drivers using fully electric EVs between August and January, but they logged a full 220,000 miles in those EVs and took more than 35,000 riders. So I think the big question here is, can introducing EVs through ride sharing, one, bring down the carbon footprint of ride sharing, but two, sort of increase customer familiarity with EVs and some of these hurdles that have long been an issue in the electric vehicle space? And it's not just uh, for environmental reasons. I mean, as is often the case, and it's, it's so much... Uh, you know, easier to talk about in some respects. There are other benefits to driving electric cars. Uh, for example, in the study that that was done uh, by uh, Uber or by the Energy Savings Trust in the UK, you know, commissioned by Uber, they found that the drivers uh, like driving electric cars. Uh, uh, passengers were intrigued by the EV. They were impressed with the smoothness and the quiet quietness of the ride. 
uh, the drivers uh, were motivated by the environmental benefits, and some of them said they had chosen to participate in the trial because of that. Their lower refueling costs, uh, about ten cents uh, a mile to run, versus sixteen cents for uh, per mile for a diesel car. Um, but those costs of EVs are expected to, to drop even more if, uh, or can drop even more if drivers can charge them at home, which is not something Londoners in general get to do. But the point is, is that this is, you know, once again, there is a business case here um, and there's uh, compelling reasons why electric vehicles uh, can really start to scale. That's true. But I will say the economic point you mentioned, sort of the cost per mile when you compare EVs versus diesel car was one of the main takeaways of the study. And basically Uber said, you know, really at the end of the day, our biggest obstacle for sort of going bigger immediately on this initiative is the lack of charging infrastructure. Um, like you alluded to, keeping EV prices a little higher than they're ultimately projected to be. So in London, but also everywhere, the question is sort of how you scale EV charging capacity and help even out the math there so that it makes it a better value proposition long term to, to drive electric. And it's also the, the time because it takes, uh, in, in while the number of charging points in central London are starting to, to grow, it takes 40 minutes to deliver an 80% charge. Um, and, uh, and that's at the, at the fast charge uh, kind of speed. If you do it at home, it's 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 four hours for a full recharge. Forty minutes in the middle of a of a of a shift, uh, you know, is a is a long time. And unless you can time it with lunch or whatever, uh, I'm not sure cabbies take uh, a full hour for lunch anyway. Um, that is going to be a problem until we can speed that down to or speed that up to you know, fifteen, ten, or even five minutes. Um, that's going to be one of the barriers for a lot of a lot of drivers. women can and will play in fighting global warming is getting a lot of attention from the public sector lately, especially from the C40 Cities organization, which created the Women for Climate initiative to support grassroots action. The battle cry is also being picked up by some pretty big corporates, including the world's biggest beauty company, L'Oreal, which is putting money behind the Women for Climate effort. Greenbiz senior writer Heather Clancy spoke with their CSO, Alexandra Palt, about the motivation. First of all, Heather, welcome. And can you address sort of L'Oreal's motivation in all of this? Yeah, so I, I went to this conference um, last month in New York, uh, expecting to see a lot of uh, government folks, and I did. There were plenty of um, mayors there from all around the world, led by um, the Paris one, um, Anne Hidalgo. And then lo and behold, I noticed there were several corporates on the schedule, including very, very prominently L'Oreal, the world's biggest beauty company. I'm sure you probably have products in, in your uh, medicine cabinet, as do I. And um, basically, I mean, it made a lot of sense when I discovered her that she was there because, you know, hey, not only is there their big consumer-based women, but it turns out that a lot of their managers are women. I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But um, to, to lay things out more specifically, 
L'Oreal is the first corporate sponsor of the climate women for climate initiative, um, which is really seeking to, to enable entrepreneurs, people that have good ideas for addressing climate change in urban communities. And they're going to put money and mentors towards that. They didn't say how much, but um, they're basically bringing some, some investment capital to this effort, to the, to the effort by the C40 cities. I spoke with Alexandra about the motivation and why it starts with every employee. So the leadership comes from the top. Um, and then we have a culture where it's, where it's authorized to have initiatives, to try new things, to find solutions, to propose solutions. And as both issues, both um, th these two things are encouraged by our leadership team, CEO and uh, executive vice president. It's of course the people on the ground, they have the possibility to bring new ideas, new projects, new investments, new solutions. Uh, we have people in, for example, when I have been last in India, you know, there was an employee who has invented a new solution to dry sludge and to be able to um, save water and recycle it. So this is really part of who we are. We, are, we have clear targets and goals. So every plant and every factory has to find solutions to reduce its carbon emission and significantly. So um, that's not a choice. It's not kind of uh, a nice to have at L'Oreal. This is part of your job description. So you have to do, and your bonus is part of this okay, also. Okay, there you go, incentive. It's for uh, brand managers, for country managers, for the operation teams. It's part of the jobs and you are evaluated on that. It's really part of our strategy. Interesting stuff. So really when it comes down to it, this is sort of, part of the incentive structure at the company? Yeah. Isn't okay. that amazing? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fascinating. So does that extend to the company's supply chain as well? Yeah. So um, two things on that. One is I've always been a firm believer that money talks. And when you are telling your employees that they need to do this as part of their job and that they're going to get paid or bonused um, for making things like this happen, that speaks a lot, right? And, and it gets people thinking differently about, you know, hey, we want to be altruistic, but again, money talks. And the thing that actually also struck me was that they didn't wait for their supply chain. So a lot of organizations will, will get things right internally first and then sort of roll um, ideas out to their supply chain. They went and said, you know what? We've got a lot of partners. Let's get them involved right away. Let is, let's get the best ideas at the local level and here's how they're doing that we have very early decided that supplier have to be part of our journey right so um all our suppliers that are strategic suppliers for us you know um they are evaluated on their sustainability performance it's part of doing business with us and they know it and actually they like it because we not just evaluate them but we have also training tools available uh, um, we help them also um, uh, elaborate their action plan. We invite them to be part of the carbon disclosure project to develop action plans to reduce carbon emissions. So um, our suppliers are really part of the program. And uh, what if they don't pass an evaluation? What happens? Yeah, well, it's a negative point. There are six. You can have six points. If you lose a point on that. It's not very smart, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but is there a consequence? Yeah, of course, it is a consequence. Somebody, another supplier, might be rated better okay. than you, and you lose business. Okay. And if it's if it's serious things, you know, um, then you can lose business without uh, even competition, you know. Uh, but people do not, uh, in general, refuse uh, 
to, to engage. But we had suppliers where there were um, issues around um, what we call zero tolerance, you know, and then they cannot work with us. That's very clear. We do not uh, compromise on our values. The financial incentive piece is really interesting. We did a story last year on sort of large companies, mostly the familiar tech players out on the the West Coast. Um, I think the the headline might have been something like bribing their employees, but sort of putting up (laughs) a financial reward for their employees to help them make progress on their climate goals. So I think that's a really interesting space to watch sort of across industries. But to bring this back full circle, why is L'Oreal putting so much emphasis on recruiting women specifically to its sustainable business course? Yeah, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think there are many factors at play here. First, quite practically, most of L'Oreal's brands speak more strongly to women than men. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know many, many folks that uh, that many. Now, my husband doesn't wear mascara yet. So anyway, although (laughs) I I know that other men do (laughs) Um, compared to other large companies. um, Actually, L'Oreal has an unusually high percentage of female executives. I discovered Almost half of its board members, which is a pretty big number, and 58% of the L'Oreal brand managers are women. So there are a lot of strong women around that that CEO, and good, kudos to him for for you know really recognizing and being willing to to surround himself. Now the other thing that I think is make perhaps the most crucial factor is that the company really truly believes, as does the C40 Cities organization that unfortunately women are more likely to be negatively impacted by climate change than men. So they're the ones that are going to be at the front line of of natural disasters, um, taking care of, of children. And also if, 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 for example, in agriculture, if, if a field goes, goes, goes bad, um, women are the ones that will pay economically. So um, it's natural for L'Oreal to worry about this. And uh, here's more about, Ms. Paul's opinion on that. I, I would like to encourage women to become uh, uh, climate leaders because we are going to be touched in a very specific way. Um, you know, first we are touched as primary caretakers, you know, because when you look at the numbers, there was an article in the media, so I haven't verified the numbers, but it's 1.7 million children that die because of consequences of pollution nowadays. So we are primary caretakers and mothers, and that will lead a lot of women to become very active. But we are also more vulnerable, you know, when or women are more vulnerable in developing countries where a lot of their income comes from agriculture, where they are responsible for getting food, they are responsible for getting water. They won't be able to fulfill their roles. They will have to take risks. And uh, so I hope that women, that will lead also to, to them raising their voice. I think once again, you know, the top sets the tone. It's also a question of political will. And our CEO, um, he has nominated a lot of powerful and strong women in the last years. I think it's helpful that he's not afraid of strong women, you know, um, because, um, you know, uh, um, we have a lot of women who say what they think. Do you report uh, to him? Yes, I report to him. So I think that is clearly um, an advantage when you have a CEO like this with the commitment he has. Um, But it's also, I think, for L'Oreal, it was very clear that it's an opportunity Um, because, uh, you know, we are in the beauty business. We have to understand women as we have to understand diversity. So we try really to reflect our consumer base. 
good topic to discuss now. Obviously, the role of women in international development and offsetting the, the worst impacts of climate change also shows up in the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. So this is a topic I'm sure we'll continue to hear more about. Senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. One of the evergreen topics on Green Biz is the business case for sustainability. How do you make it? And what are the standard metrics and ratios that you need to make the internal and sometimes external case for sustainability initiatives? And now we've got this thing called the circular economy. How do you measure that? What does that even look like? And how would you think about that? Well, Senior writer Barbara Grady wrote a piece about that this week. And Barbara, welcome uh, to Green Biz 350. Hi, Joel. So tell us, what did you find out? Well, I spoke with executives at several firms that are working on that very problem of putting metrics to the circular economy to find the business advantages. Um, And they're often working together. And so organizations involved include the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, as you would expect, since Ellen MacArthur essentially founded the circular economy movement. And then also Accenture Strategy and ULEHS Sustainability are working on this in a kind of collaborative fashion. And then ULEHS is also working with three of its clients to um, as kind of case studies, and they are Philips Lighting, Patagonia, and H&M, all you know, pioneers in the circular economy. So what does this look like in real life? I mean, some, what are some of the specific circular practices that these guys are studying? Well, they're using the five circular business models that Accenture Strategy outlines in the book Waste to Wealth which was written by two of its managers. So those five business models include recovery and recycling, product life extensions, sharing platforms, circular supply chains, and then products and services. And then within each of these, they're finding those nuggets of value that um, should be measured. They're using um, Philips Lighting and Patagonia and retailer H&M all pioneers in circular economy as kind of case studies of where those those values might lie. I spoke with Adrian Wayne, who is the circular economy specialist at ULEHS, and here is how he describes what exactly they're measuring. This work is all you know originating from a number of our clients who are really driving towards a circular economy. And as the providers of their sustainability reporting systems, we're trying to figure out, okay, if you're going circular, how might those systems need to evolve in order to capture the additional insights required by circular economy business models? And the way we've approached this is to consolidate the circular economy into the five business models put forward by Accenture in the book Waste to Wealth, as these kind of make it more understandable in the business context. And it's around each of those five business models that we started to build some KPIs. So in product as a service, for example, we're looking at how you can track the maintenance frequency of your service in order to understand how you could improve the durability of a product and therefore reduce the cost of providing that service. With circular supply chain, we mm-hmm. could ask questions and look for indicators around the quantity of feedstock coming from second life or renewable sources. 
And that's a fairly standard indicator that many businesses already look at within sustainability reporting. If you move a bit further along to kind of the design phase where you're looking at maybe designing a modular product that is suitable for product life extension, you could put questions in place around the quantity of your portfolio that are viable for product life extension through modularity. And then you can look at, um, we've discussed product as a service, so if you, if you move a bit further on, you can look at the sharing economy. And again, ideas around quantifying the size of your portfolio that are viable for sharing, quantifying the resources, the embedded carbon, all of the inputs that are avoided through allowing 10 people to share the same asset rather than them having 10 individual assets. And then in the fifth business model, which is around recovery and recycling, again, you get back to, I guess, more standard sustainability metrics around recyclability. But we're quite interested to extend that to see, you know, where are those recyclates going? Are they going back into new value chains? Are they going into the value chains of other businesses? So what you can take away from that is that, you know, Circularity metrics are a substantial extension to sustainability metrics. And rather than tracking entities such as carbon emissions, you know, waste creation, they're actually tracking the flow of products around the circular economy. And it's that kind of information that we're aiming to provide to businesses to enable them to make better decisions about how they roll out circular economy business models. It's just so interesting that uh, UL, UL Underwriters Labs is is looking at this and developing, thinking about standards and metrics. What's the goal of this? Is is there some actual bottom line metric or advantage that uh, can be created here, or, or what's is there some other goal? Well, executives at all of these firms, Accenture, ULEHS, and Ellen MacArthur Foundation say that while implementations of circular practices are certainly growing with, with many companies using them in various product lines and successfully, few companies are making the complete transition to circularity. And they all say that that is what is needed to recognize the true value. I mean, one of the aspects of, of circularity is that it's not just a product, it's not just a company, it's the system. Uh, and so, you know, th this goes beyond the company walls or even even their supply chain. So I guess I'm wondering how this is going to help propel circular economy thinking by companies beyond H&M Patagonia. Yeah. As, as we've heard Ellen MacArthur say at various Green Biz events that the transition needs to involve every department within a company, and then supply chains and customers, and eventually economies. The idea I think that these guys have is that by displaying how evident the value is, you know, displaying how companies can actually find advantage, they will kind of push the adoption of circular practices beyond the early adopter phase and into a you know wider adoption and throughout companies once one company does it other companies within that industry will do it and it will just spread 
So these guys are arguing that not only are circular models good for the environment, but they create very significant business advantages. Those include lower costs for procurement, energy, transportation, etc., and also very more efficient material flows and gains in customer loyalty and then consequently sales. So that combination of lower costs and higher sales, of course, means a very strong return on investment. So I spoke with Nicola Kim, who is Philips Global Head of Sustainability, Environment and Health and Safety. And she said that Philips views its use of circular economy practices as a competitive advantage. Philips is, of course, famous for offering lighting as a service and outfitting whole cities and large medical centers with all of their lighting needs, right down to the energy it takes to supply that lighting. Kim said it has provided a very good return for Philips while also allowing it to conserve resources, both for the company and the planet. And it's been so good that Philips is expanding circular design procedures into more and more of its product lines with the aim of eventually including it in all of them. Well, that's really interesting, Barbara. I mean, it's great to start to get beyond the, the few companies that we've been citing on circular economy and, and really get into the hardcore business metrics that will make companies uh, stand up and take notice and, and maybe accelerate this whole circularity idea. So thanks for looking into it. We'll look forward to see what happens with that senior writer, Barbara Grady. Thank you, Joel. Nice to talk to you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more information about the organizations, the stories, the events we mentioned in this episode, including the link to the 30 under 30 submission form. Thanks to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments and ideas and tips. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.